The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Let's continue to worship through the study of God's Word. Let me ask you to open it to your copy of the Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you came in today and don't have a copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to reach into the rack in front of you. There should be one there that you can find, 2 Peter chapter 3. We come to the last of three chapters of the study through 2 Peter. If you've been with us uh, for the last uh, couple of months, we've been working our way through this, and we're on the home stretch uh, now, 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me read God's Word over you. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verse 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The decoration, I'll be back, has become so iconic in our culture today that even someone like myself who hasn't seen nor plans to see any of the movies that made it famous knows about that catchphrase. It's attributed to the Austrian-American actor Arnold Schwarzenegger It was first introduced, though it's been used in a number of his movies since then, it was first introduced in the 1984 science fiction film, The Terminator, in which Schwarzenegger's uh, character, The Terminator, is an alien assassin who's looking for his target. And apparently he goes into a police station where his target is being held and is not allowed access to the individual that he's after. And so he just begins to size up the situation. He looks back and forth across the counter and then looks at the police sergeant and says those words, I'll be back. 
goes out a little bit later, drives a vehicle into the police station, obliterates the counter, and, and wipes out all of the police station staff and makes good on his promise. Beloved, I, I think, though it may seem like a trivial way to get to it, I think that this is what Peter is reminding us about when we come to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. He is reminding us about the promise that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has made that he will be back. But listen to me. When he makes good on his promise, it will not be science fiction. It will not be a Hollywood film and he won't be acting. It will be a real, historical, literal, cataclysmic event in which Jesus comes back for his people and he comes back to judge those who have been his enemies and who have rejected him. Now here's the tension in this passage of scripture. When we think about the promises that Jesus made about coming back, most of the time for us as believers, we think about the pastoral side of that. Now, what I mean by that is we think about the benefit to us and what we long for, what we most look forward to. I think about times like John chapter 14, verse three, when, when, when Jesus told his disciples who were discouraged about him, his news that he was about to depart, you know, said to them, and if I go away and prepare a place for you, I'm coming back to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. As a believer in Christ, I look forward to that. Jesus is speaking to me pastorally there, and I, I, I'm longing for that day. Similar as Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when Jesus actually was ascending back into heaven, the angel, uh, obviously quoting Jesus or citing him at least, said to the apostles, who no doubt were standing there with their mouths wide open, watching Jesus ascend up to the sky, says to them, why are, you know, the angel said to them, well, why, are you, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus is going to come back in similar manner as he is now leaving. I long for that. Those disciples longed for that. There is a pastoral side to the promise of Jesus to come back. But there's not only a pastoral side, there is a disciplinary side. There is a judgment side as well. And this is the character quality of Jesus' return that suggests that he is going to come back not only to take his people to be with him, but to bring about judgment on those who have rejected him. And, and, and interestingly, that is what this passage of scripture is about. More than the pastoral side, it is about the judgment side. Now, here, here's the tension. Here is the thing that we have to wrestle with for a moment. I, I want to remind you that these words are written to Christians. They are written to people that, that embrace and are waiting for and are going to be the recipients of the pastoral side of Jesus' return. And yet when we come to this passage of scripture right here, he is calling on believers in Christ to be reminded that he's coming back. And he is warning us to make sure that we don't forget that he is not only coming pastorally for us, but he is coming in judgment. Now, why would he do that? I think when we come to this passage of scripture, we find our gracious God 
through the apostle Peter, reminding us of the reality that it is possible along the way, not for us to lose our salvation. We've already talked about this in this study, but to get sucked into a, at the very best, a forgetfulness of the reality of his coming at the very worst some of the implications of how that plays out in our daily lives. In other words, beginning to embrace, embrace the, the ideologies of, of our day and time as, as they were present in this day and time that, that Jesus isn't coming back, that that's not going to be a reality. It doesn't matter what he said. It's not going to come to fruition. And the shipwreck faith that that can actually cause in a Christian's life. I think also there's a reality we've acknowledged up to this point, and that is the realization that there will always be those in our midst who profess to know Christ, but who are in fact not truly believers. These false teachers are indicative of that. They were in the presence of the people of faith, but they were not of the people of faith. And so we know Peter was writing also as a warning to any that might be among us who might know the words, who have might given the physical expressions, but deep down in their heart of hearts have never repented of their sins and trusted Jesus, not only as Savior, but as Lord of their lives. So Peter comes and he draws a contrast. He draws a contrast between what God says about Jesus coming back and what the world says about Jesus coming back. Look at it from three different standpoints. The third one we'll just begin to get into this week and then pick up next week. But he's going to talk to us about the fact that God's word says it. It says that Jesus is coming back. But then he'll go on the other side of the contrast and say God's enemies scoff at it. They laugh at that. They ridicule that. They deny that. And then ultimately come back to say, but God's nature, even in the midst of that scoffing, supports this claim that Jesus made in saying, I'll be back. So let's look at it from that, those three standpoints. First of all, God's word says it. I think in verses one and two, there is uh, the, 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 the awareness that we are brought to under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about why it's important for us to have this conversation. In other words, why it is important for us to be reminded about the second coming of Christ. You can't read verses 1 and 2 and not know that that is the emphasis there. You see it in verse 1. He says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. We don't know whether Peter was saying you didn't get it the first time or more than likely he's just saying, I want to keep talking to you about this. So I've written two letters now. To what end there in verse one, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, he says. And then in verse two, that you should remember the predictions. This is very reminiscent of what we found in second Peter chapter one. You remember at the, toward the end of that chapter, really around the middle, he, he, he puts this emphasis of reminder on the table. And he, and he keeps going over it there again as well. In verse 12 of chapter 1, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Why? In verse 13, as long as I'm in the body, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. In, in verse 15, I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. Do you remember what we said? If you're part of our city, you remember why, one of the reasons that we gave or that Peter would say that over and over again? Because he understood that simple intellectual knowledge was no guarantee 
of impact in one's life. Just because you know something academically or intellectually doesn't mean it's gonna automatically find its way into your feet and your hands and, and, and on your lips. And that's exactly what we have happening here in chapter three, verses one and two. I, I think Peter knew that the people knew that Jesus was coming back. I, I think he even acknowledged that the vast majority of them actually believed that was gonna happen, but he understood this. He understood that it's possible the longer we go, the farther we get from his ascension, it seems the more delayed his return is, it is possible for that to simply become a theological idea that gets pushed back into the shadows of our thinking and doesn't have any real bearing on how we live our lives. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you thought about Jesus' return? Believer in Christ, when was the last time you got up in the morning thinking that reality is going to gauge everything I do today. It's going to impact everything that I do. When was the last time you looked at a financial decision you made or a temptation that you were facing? When was the last time you looked at those things through the lens of a very real conviction that this is actually going to happen, that Jesus is going to come back? You see, I think there's an indication here that Peter Peter recognized the fact that it's not automatic, that that will impact our lives. For some of us, it's been a long time. Other than singing it in the words of a song or maybe hearing it in some flippant rhetorical reference, it's been a long time. And some of us have said, this has a very real bearing on how I'm going to go to school today, how I'm going to go to work today, how I'm going to engage my wife today, how I'm going to, I'm going to shepherd my children today, how, how I'm going to, 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 to uh, let it gauge what I watch on television or what I let my ears listen to or, or on and on we could go. Peter knew that. Notice there in verse one, he says in both of these letters, he says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind in my English text, language of the New Testament. The word sincere means it means right, good, pure, healthy. Peter's obviously suggesting that there it's possible for our minds not to be healthy, not to be right, not to be good. Why? because our way of thinking is something that is just that. It is just a way of thinking and it doesn't impact a way of acting. And so he comes to this place right here and answers the question, why do we need to be reminded? Because that is not automatic. It's not automatic because you grow up in a church like this or you're raised in a Christian home that you embrace intellectually the idea that Jesus is coming back. It's not automatic that that will stay at the forefront of your thinking and impact the way in a practical, functional way you live your life. Not only why it's important for us to be reminded, but what we need to remember. Peter doesn't leave us in the dark about that. Look at verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, let me, let, let me, let me tell you what, what Peter's talking about here, and then I want to show it to you, okay? He is talking about the reality that the second coming of Messiah, the second coming of Christ is a dominant theme in all of scripture. I think practically that's what this comes down to. He, he, he says the prophets talked about it. He says Jesus talked about it. And then he said the apostles talked about it by way of reporting on what Jesus talked about. So you have these three areas, the prophets in the Old Testament. 
You have Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and then you've got the apostles in the rest of the New Testament reflecting back on the life and ministry and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying, I am going to stir your reminder up that all of them talked a lot about the second coming of Messiah. I wrestled with whether or not to leave it at that, to comment on it, maybe throw a couple of cross-references at you, or or to, to actually remind you about it. And I don't think we can do the text justice without us defaulting to the latter. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn your attention to the screen for a moment, a few moments. And and let me just give you some examples of what he's talking about. I want to take those three categories. I want to take the Old Testament prophets. I'm going to take Jesus and the gospels. And I want to take the, the, the apostles, the apostolic writing. And I just want to give you some samples. And I underscore samples because from a, a much longer list, I deleted a bunch of these. That's how, how many there are. 39 books in the New Testament, 35 of them make explicit references to the second coming. Out of 260 chapters in the New Testament alone, there are over 300 references to the second coming of Christ. And we can back up into the Old Testament prophets and find the same theme. For example, Isaiah 24, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. I want you to mark that in your your mind because you're going to see that kind of cataclysmic stuff in the rest of this passage here in 2 Peter. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. Ezekiel chapter 30, for the day is near. What day? The day of the Lord is near, Ezekiel says. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations, he says. Daniel, very familiar passage of scripture. Daniel in his vision said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The Old Testament prophets spoke much about this. Joel said the sun shall be turned to darkness on that day and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Micah said, for behold, the Lord's coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And then in in God's last words before 400 years of silence, the last book in the Old Testament that prefaced 400 years of God not speaking to his people, these were his last words. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And he says, and you shall tread down the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet 
on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, he says, the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Notice how he's appealing for this to affect conduct. Behold, he says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And we know in the New Testament, Jesus identifies Elijah that was to come as John the Baptist. Jesus himself made this as it's described here in 2 Peter chapter 3, his commandment. Matthew chapter 16, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew chapter 25, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then, then he will sit on his glorious throne in Mark's gospel. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man, get it, coming in clouds with great power and glory. Mark chapter 13, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I'm glad those pastoral statements are inserted, pastoral declarations in the midst of all of this talk about judgment. Luke chapter 12, you also must be ready Notice, talking to his disciples, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect, he says. So you have the Old Testament prophets, and then you have the command of the Lord Jesus. He spoke about it over and over again. The apostles gave testimony to that. The apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, he says who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each of the one will receive his commendation from God. 1 Corinthians 15, in that great chapter of about the resurrection of the body, Paul says, but each one in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, he's going to rise first, obviously did, then at his coming, at, at, at his second coming, if you will, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Paul probably wrote more about the second coming to the Thessalonians than any of their churches that he wrote to. First Thessalonians 1, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Notice how he puts these together. Turning to God from idols, waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The anticipation of the second coming ought to inspire godly behavior. First Thessalonians 3, 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In chapter four, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Notice the word, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, he says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he'll grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us and the Lord Jesus, when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy and said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. He said, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who, notice this, who loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing today? Are you longing for it? To Titus, he wrote, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The apostle John got in on the action in the book of Revelation. He said, behold, he's coming. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, he says. And then he quotes Jesus in Revelation 16. Behold, I am coming. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Those are the words of our Lord quoted by the Apostle John. You see it? The holy prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus himself, and then the apostolic testimony. This is what he's talking about there in verse 2, beloved. Paul says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Why? Because, as verse 1 says, it is not automatic that just because we know it as a theological idea, that it will be ever present on our minds so as to impact the way that we live our daily lives. God's word says it over and over and over again. Jesus will be back. Secondly, Paul says, even though God's word says that repeatedly, his enemies scoff at it. They scoff at it. All of us have heard the catchphrase, haters gonna hate. It's a popular expression that's intended to be an exhortation and encouragement to someone who's receiving criticism and always uh, hearing naysayers. And, 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 and the idea is that it suggests that, that people act according to what they are, 
the, the, the author of Proverbs said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's the way he's going to, he, he, you know, the way he, he thinks and the way he acts is actually going to be an expression of what he is. And consequently, somebody who's always hating and always hating is actually a, a hater by nature. Well, Peter says the same thing about scoffers. Scoffers are going to scoff. They're going to scoff because that is their nature. And in verses 3 and 4, he lays out the, the scoffing, or at least one example of the scoffing of those who dismiss, they dismiss the, the claim that Jesus is coming back. I think in these verses here, we are shown their agenda, and then we're given a taste of their argument, or at least one of their arguments. Let me show you their agenda. You know what the agenda of a scoffer is? The agenda is to follow his or her nature. That, that, that's what, that's what, what Peter's talking about here. Hater's going to hate, scoffer's going to scoff. Why? Because uh, someone hates because they are a hater. Someone scoffs because they are a scoffer by nature. Look at the agenda in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, it's not an expression of chronological order. He's already talked about some stuff. It is an expression of priority, of emphasis. He says, don't miss this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And here's why. Following their own sinful desires. Do you see that statement there at the end of verse three, following their own sinful desires? Do you know why someone scoffs at the second coming of Christ? It is not. Listen to me. It's not because they're smarter than Christians and they've come up with some logical, rational argument that disproves the second coming. It's because the word of God says they're actually trying to justify their own actions and they are in pursuit of their own sinful desires. Say it another way, because they are driven by their own sinful desires, they want to justify their actions. This is what Peter's been telling us about these false teachers, that while there are all kinds of characteristics and qualities about them, what ultimately drives them is that they, they like their ungodly lifestyle. They like doing their own thing. So I want you to see the relationship here. Okay, we've got this theological idea of the second coming, this doctrine that we hold dear. And, and, and some look at this and they say, it's not going to happen. Jesus is not going to happen. Why? Because the fact that Jesus is coming back or the assertion, let's say that Jesus is coming back, suggests there's going to be a judgment. We just went through passage after passage in the Old Testament and the New Testament that shows this is not going to be a pretty picture for the enemies of God. There is judgment coming with the reality of this doctrine. Jesus is coming back, and because he's coming back, that is going to bring with it judgment. And then over here, you have the judgment of what? The judgment of actions, the judgment of, of works. Many verses that we looked at, Amigo, talked about being exposed. Don't be found naked, so you expose. This passage talks about it. Well, this is the way it worked with those, the, 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 the scoffers, and this is the way it works with any scoffer. That is... They wanted to justify their actions. They liked their ungodly living. They liked their greed. They liked their covetousness. They liked their sexual promiscuity. They liked all of those things. So in order to justify that, what do you do? Well, you say there's no accountability. 
There's no judgment that is coming. I'm not going to be judged for this so I can just do what I want to do. Well, where does that lead? It leads back to this doctrine, this doctrine of the second coming. You dismiss the judgment. You logically, obviously dismiss the second coming. And this is exactly what he was saying these false teachers were doing. Listen to me, church. Come in here real close. We said it a couple of weeks ago. We need to be careful, don't we? about dismissing this too simply by looking at ourselves and say, well, I'm not a false teacher. Or maybe even looking in our church, in our congregation and saying, you know, I, I really don't, you know, Shattuck's been up there talking about these false teachers. Now we need to be aware of them. I, I really don't, I don't know that we have any in our church. And therefore we look at this and we look at it as a good Bible study and we, and we've studied second Peter and you know, we, we need to be on guard of false teachers, but really not any personal practical application. You remember what we said? We said, even though we may not be false teachers, even though it's possible that we don't have any false teachers in the midst of this congregation right now, we need to be aware of how, how their DNA, how their nature, how what's being talked about here actually influences us. It's really not that different, is it? We justify a pet peeve sin in our lives and we justify it by saying, well, we're saved under grace. It's all under grace. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Or we say, you know what? I know some people in my growth group or some people, you know, and say, you know, they got some worse stuff going on than I do. So mine's really not that big a deal. Or maybe we zoom out a little bit and we say, you know, some guy just crawled up into a hotel in Las Vegas and massacred 50 something people. I'm not anything like that. Would never do something like that. So my, mine is not that big a deal. And on and on we could go, right? Ever how small, ever how big this little sin that compromises godliness and righteousness in our life. And, and, and we, we hold on to it and we, you know, and, and we, we find all kinds of ways to justify them as believers in Jesus Christ. And without even realizing it, Without even realizing, we, we look at the reality that judgment is coming and there's an accountability and we, we end up dismissing that and minimizing that. And then while we would never, while we would never acknowledge and we would never say the, the, the doctrine of the second coming isn't a reality, we'd never say Jesus is not coming back. What do we have to do? We have to take that doctrine and we have to move it into the shadows of our living. We got to put it on the shelf. We've got to move it to a, a, a lesser component to, to the point where now we're not thinking about it every day. We're not looking through its lens at how we love our wives or how we love our husbands, how we shepherd our children, how we manage our bank account, how we spend our time, what we allow our, our, our eyes to watch. We, we hang on to it as a, as a doctrine, but it's not a lens anymore that's affecting our daily life because if it's a lens that's affecting our daily life, when Jesus comes back, judgment is coming and judgment is going to affect even the sins I'm holding on to as a Christian and I don't want to deal with that. So it's just a whole lot easier, isn't it? To take the idea of judgment, cast it away under grace and we know we know with regard to eternity, that's where it belongs. But in an unhealthy way, let that affect how important this doctrine is that shows up over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture. So we, we need to look at how the agenda of these false teachers actually can play out in our own lives. Look at their argument. 
they will say in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? And, and that's, a, you know, that, that's a sarcastic, there's a sarcastic tone. They don't believe it's come. They're saying to Christians, okay, you know, put up or shut up. Where is it? It'll be several decades since the time Jesus ascended back into heaven since these words were written. So you got several decades under the belt that they're now looking back and saying, look, hadn't ha happened yet. Hadn't happened yet. It's not going to happen. And here's the rational argument that they come up with. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know what their argument is? Their argument is a, 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 an, an orderly world in which we live. From, from the time creation happened, they say, we've lived in order. Sun comes up every day. Planets rotate. There are seasons. There's day and night. There's regularity to this. We live in a closed system, they are saying. And by the way, this plays out in ideologies today. Uniformitarianism, I know is a big word. You can Google it someday and look, look up. It's just the idea that because we have always lived in a closed system, we will always live in a closed system and nothing can interrupt that. Nothing's going to change it. And consequently, there is the dismissal in ideologies that embrace ideas like that today, that miracles don't exist, couldn't be a six-day literal creation, anything related to the supernatural. No, because we live in this orderly world, and the fact of the matter is, you and I know there's an element of that that is true. We do live in an orderly world. This is their argument. The argument says, because we've always lived in this orderly world, we will always live in this orderly world. And nothing, nothing cataclysmic, nothing otherworldly, nothing like all of those descriptions that we, we read on those verses a, a, a few minutes ago, nothing like that is ever going to, to interrupt that. And, and so Peter comes and he says, look, even though Scripture over and over and over again has said at the Old Testament prophets, even though our Lord and Savior commanded our awareness of it, and even though we as apostles have continued to give testimony of, of, of both of those realities, there will always be those who are, who are sarcastically throwing stones at it, dismissing it, and coming up with logical arguments like this to suggest it's not going to happen. You Christians are wasting your time. No, you're wasting your lives because you could be eating, drinking, and being merry. You could be following the passions of your flesh and fulfilling all of your desires. You could be doing what you want to do and living your life like you want to live it. You guys are wasting your lives. The agenda and the argument of scoffers Peter says scoffers are going to scoff, not because they have rational arguments that are better than your arguments, but because they're following the passions of their sinful flesh. Now, let me just get us into the third one. We looked at God's word, says it. We looked at God's enemies, scoff at it. Then, then Peter responds he responds under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the scoffers. But remember, he's writing to us and he's not really trying to prove something to them because why? Because scoffers are going to scoff. They're going to follow their nature. He's, he's appealing to us not to buy in to their logical argument because we know their agenda and we know that it's possible for us to be influenced by that. And so Peter comes back and he says, look, 
The very nature of God, the God that you know, supports the idea that Jesus is coming back. And what Peter does is he identifies four attributes of God that, that he puts on the table to say, look, th this at least puts you in a position to compel you, to be compelled not to embrace what the scoffers say. And he's basically, you know, he's basically taking the ideas, okay, scoffers are going to scoff, haters are going to hate. Well, if, if that's true, that people act according to their nature, then make sure that you keep in mind that God's going to act according to his nature. And then he identifies four attributes. We'll only talk about one of them this morning. And, and the only reason I, I get into this, well, there's two reasons. One of them is this is only as far as I got in the other services, so I can't take you any further. But the reason I can't just leave you hanging here is because we can't stop with the scoffing. I got to show you Peter's response, his immediate response. So let me show you the first attribute, and that is that God is sovereign. The fact that God is sovereign suggests to us that the second coming of Christ is a very real possibility. You remember what the scoffers have just said? We live in an orderly world. And so nothing you know, supernatural or chaotic could interrupt that. Peter says, whoa, problem with that is you don't know your Bible and you don't know history. Verse five, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through, you say, uh, out of water and through water by the word of God. We won't take the time to chase it down. You could do it in family devotions, your quiet time, or on your own this week. Go back to Genesis chapter one and see how God, actually there was this chaos in Genesis one and two. Spirit of God hovering over the waters, darkness over the face of the deep. And then you know what the next eight verses is? God spoke and he brought order to that. And, and, and he brought about the physical creation as we know it. Didn't suggest that God didn't make the whole thing at some time in the past. It's simply saying God worked, he spoke into that order, uh, excuse me, into that chaos and he brought order to it. That's what he's talking about. That's example number one, but Peter doesn't stop there. Look at verse six. And that by means of these, same thing, water and God's word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But What's he talking about there? He's talking about Noah and the flood. He says, you know what? God interrupted, he interrupted what was in place and brought order to it at creation. And then he interrupted the order with the chaos of the flood and brought judgment on the earth. You can check it out in Genesis chapter six through eight. Most of you know the story. So Peter's put two examples on the table. He said, number one, God has, in fact, interrupted what was in place. He did it at creation. And then number two, he did it a second time at the flood. And so Peter says, do the math. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. In other words, if God has done it at least twice in the past, in the past then you better believe he is more than capable of doing it again in the future. That's what verse 7 says. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, not water this time. Why? Because God promised Noah that he would never destroy the, the world by water again. So the next time he does it, he's going to do it by fire. And he says, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's the same thing he said about the false teachers in chapters two and three, that their judgment was being stored up. And he simply says to the people, based upon God's 
reservation of the right to interrupt his creation because he made it in the first place. He reserves the right to interrupt his order anytime that he wants to. And you better believe he's going to do it again. He completely dismisses their argument on the basis of the fact that they, they forgot history. They forgot this is what God actually did. One last thing on the sovereignty of God, and we'll put a period on it this morning. Did you notice the emphasis on the word? End of verse 5, God did this thing in creation by his word. Then in verse 6, that by means of these, same thing, he brought judgment on the world, the word of God. And then verse 7, he says, by the same word. If God's spoken twice in times past to interrupt what was in place with otherworldly intervention, then he's going to speak the same word and bring about an interruption again in the future. This time, it will mean the heavens and the earth that now exist are going to be burned up and they're being kept right now until that day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. I, I don't know how it is with you. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that it's similar. But I know for me, I find myself longing more and more for the return of Christ, don't you? Every time I hear about something like we've just been through, happened in Las Vegas, guy raining down, flood of bullets on a group of innocent people, I long for Jesus to come back. I hear about a guy driving a car into a, a crowd of people at a protest in Charlottesville, killing one, causing the death of several others, injuring numerous others. I long for Jesus to come back. I hear about a brother in Christ being gunned down in Benghazi for his faith, leaving behind a wife and a one-year-old Son, I long for Jesus to come back. Every time I hear about something like a guy walking into a nightclub, an ISIS sympathizer gunning down a bunch of people, I long for Jesus to come back. But every time, every time I turn my eyes to the eastern sky in anticipation of that and he's not there, I confess to you, I'm tempted to become discouraged. It's easy in those moments for me, I know. It's easy in those moments to entertain the idea, the possibility. Well, where is he? Why is he waiting? And maybe even if I'm dead honest, could they be right? I think God knew that the longer Christ tarries, the more of a chance there will be for us to be influenced by the ideologies of the day and the scoffers of the day. And so he writes, he writes 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, to remind us that Jesus has said, I'll be back. I'll be back. And everything is in place. Everything is in place for him to make good on that promise. Christian, I pray you'll join me this morning in a new resolve to godly living in light of this truth, to righteousness. Maybe that means repentance in your life or mine to some sin we're holding on to you that is a, is a, is a smudge on the reputation of Christ who could come back any day, any moment. 
Let's repent and let this compel us to godly living. If you're here today without Christ, I, I, I plead with you today. Hear the testimony of scripture over and over and over and over again. Hear the repeated emphasis on this subject. Jesus is coming back. He will come back pastorally for those who belong to him. He will come back in judgment for those who don't. We plead with you today. Be his through repentance of sin and faith in him. Trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. I pray you'll do that right there at your seat. If you're here in this room today, in your heart of hearts, if you're listening, watching by video, in your living room or in your car, wherever you are, your heart of hearts. Change your mind about your sin and about Jesus and trust him and him alone to do something for you you can't do for yourself. And that's to forgive your sin and put the life of God back inside of you. And in doing that, give you this hope of living in anticipation of his return. If that's your heartbeat this morning, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to stand and sing and There's going to be some pastors here at the front and I would invite you, if that's what your heart's telling you this morning, you leave your seat during that song. Don't worry about singing. You just leave your seat and come down here and tell one of these pastors that. Put it in your own words. I want to follow Christ. I want to accept Christ. I want to, I want to be saved today. Whatever words you can muster up, let them pray for you and encourage you and help you in, in that journey. There may be other reasons for coming. Some of you may just want one of these guys to pray for you, pray with you in your journey. Maybe you've got questions you want to ask. I invite you to take time right now to give physical expression to what's going on in your heart. Father, we want to say thank you for not leaving us in the dark about Christ coming. And then, Lord, we want to say thank you for not just running it by us one time but continuing to emphasize it and calling us to remembrance. Give us grace for repentance from sin as believers that tarnish the testimony of the gospel. Lord, give grace to those who, for the very first time this morning, may be saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to this glorious gospel and his good salvation. Lord, we We pray your spirit would work in our midst in this time. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.